The Buffalo History Museum podcast is made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is just one in a series of new digital offerings coming soon from the museum. To find out more, check out our social media channels or visit our website at www.buffalohistory.org. In the fall of 1918, Erie County, like much of the world, was overcome by an H1N1 virus commonly, though perhaps mistakenly known as the Spanish flu. Over 18 months between 1918 and 1919, the virus infected an estimated 500 million people worldwide, killing up to 50 million or between 2 and 3 percent of the world's population on its way to becoming one of the deadliest pandemics the world has ever known. In fact, in one year, the Spanish flu killed more people than in an entire century of the bubonic plague. In the United States, the Spanish flu killed an estimated 675,000 people, with the most coming in the virus's merciless second wave. In Buffalo, the flu is believed to have infected over 30,000 residents and taken approximately 2,500 lives. Today, as we enter into October, our eighth month of dealing with the COVID-19 virus, this topic seems especially fitting. In October of 1918, just over a century ago, as the colder weather chased people indoors, the cases of the flu spiked, making it the pandemic's deadliest month. I'd like to note that the information in this podcast is not meant to be political. The facts were gathered by pouring through newspapers and medical sources from late 1918, and as our nation's president, perhaps the most guarded man on the entire planet, contracted the virus just days ago, it should serve as a warning that we all need to be careful. Wear your masks, wash your hands, and be considerate of those around you. We've navigated storms more turbulent than this, and this too will pass. Before we dive into the local story, let's give some background on the flu and the world into which it was born. The first cases of the flu in the United States were seen in Haskell County, Kansas, a rural area where humans and animals lived within close proximity. Epidemiological evidence points to Haskell as being ground zero for the flu. In January and February of 1918, Dr. Loring Minor reported treating patients with standard though extreme flu-like symptoms. Patients showed a high fever, body aches, and a non-productive cough. The illness's severity and ability to kill puzzled Dr. Minor. It affected not only the very old and the very young, but seemed to also greatly affect otherwise strong and healthy adults. The symptoms of the flu were as follows. Grip, or influenza, the newspaper noted, usually begins with a chill followed by aching, feverishness, and sometimes nausea and dizziness, and a general feeling of weakness and depression. 
The temperature is from 100 to 104, and the fever usually lasts from 3 to 5 days. The germs attack the mucous membrane or lining of the air passages, the nose, the throat, and bronchial tubes. There's also a hard cough, especially bad at night, oftentimes a sore throat or tonsillitis, and frequently all of the appearances of a severe head cold. Miner published his findings in a weekly medical publication, hoping to warn others around the nation and world about the deadly strain of the influenza. It seems that his report was the only one published throughout early 1918. By March, the cases in Haskell County disappeared, for a time at least. Some believe that the influenza would have disappeared for good had it not been for one thing, the Great War. Since August of 1914, a war the likes of which the world had never seen was being waged throughout Europe, and war, with its close confines and often poorly nourished soldiers, is a breeding ground for infection. For the first two and a half years of the conflict, the U.S. remained uninvolved with what it saw as a purely European war. With the nation's foreign policy still under the guidance of the century-old Monroe Doctrine, the U.S. was not inclined to, quote, go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. By early 1917, however, the U.S. could no longer afford neutrality. German aggression toward neutrals, specifically in the form of unrestricted submarine warfare, had already drawn America close to battle in 1915. That May, a German U-boat sunk the RMS Lusitania, a British passenger vessel carrying nearly 1,200 people, 128 of whom were American, two of whom were from Western New York, Roycroft founder Albert Hubbard and his wife, Alice. Germany's tactics at sea drew Americans close to war, but it was a German message intercepted by the British in January of 1917 that forced America to declare war against the German Empire. At the time of the declaration in April, America's military was undersized and ill-equipped to face the experienced German army. The government encouraged enlistment to grow the armed forces, but its efforts were met with limited success. Facing a desperate need for troops, Congress passed the Selective Service Act in May 1917, allowing for a military draft. Through conscription and volunteer recruitment, the American Expeditionary Force grew from about 300,000 troops in April 1917 to nearly 3 million just one year later. Around the country, military training camps sprung up, hurrying to prepare American soldiers for war. Provisions at these camps were often sparse, and housing, clothing, and food were often inadequate. In some cases, camps were unable to supply soldiers with proper rifles, forcing them to drill using wooden sticks rather than guns. At Kansas's Camp Funston, from where the flu was first believed to have spread en masse, upwards of 56,000 troops had gathered together in conditions ideal for the spread of the disease. Some soldiers on leave traveled between the camp and Haskell County, just 270 miles southwest of Funston. There, they were infected with the virus, carrying it back unknowingly to the densely populated military base. Within weeks, 1,100 people there became ill. 
Soldiers were then sent to other military facilities and later to Europe from where the disease would spread across the globe. According to pathologist and Nobel laureate Sir Frank McFarlane Burnett, the evidence was strongly suggestive that the 1918 pandemic began in the U.S. and that its spread was intimately related to war conditions and especially to the arrival of American troops in France. The American Expeditionary Force carried the flu with them, delivering it to the European mainland in April of 1918, from which it spread devastating populations. By May, it had reached the Iberian Peninsula, where it was given the name Spanish flu. The reasoning for this was simple. Since Spain had remained neutral in the war, its media was free to report on the virus objectively as opposed to other nations which underreported the story for fear of damaging morale amidst the war. Spanish reports spread across the globe, leading to the misapplication of the name. Newspapers of other nations, like the U.S., chose to hide stories of the virus deep into their back pages. On October 8th, the Buffalo commercial featured two stories about the impact of the virus— the first honored two nurses who had died from the sickness while serving overseas. The second reported that a deadly strain was sweeping through marine facilities across the region. Both articles were buried on the paper's second last page. By late September, the virus had hit home for those in and around Buffalo. In late September, the first confirmed cases of the virus were reported at a military facility at Niagara-on-the-Lake in Ontario. Though the outbreak occurred just miles north of Buffalo, many of the city's civic and business leaders were disinclined to take drastic measures to avoid an outbreak. At a special meeting regarding the virus on October 7, 1918, the City Health Department, led by Buffalo Health Commissioner Franklin Graham, decided upon the adoption of, quote, practical preventative measures against influenza, agreeing that, quote, no alarm is felt, the disease has no serious grip on the local public. Graham was new to the role of health commissioner. He had assumed the job when the former commissioner, Dr. Francis Franzek, left the post to serve with the war effort just as many local medical professionals had done. It's worth noting that at the time of the health department's meeting, more than 300 cases of Spanish flu and pneumonia had been reported within the city. However, officials cautiously dismissed the threat, claiming that the virus was an exaggerated form of the flu, which regularly kills two to three times more people than this virus will. In its preliminary report, the health department announced, in view of the impending epidemic, it may become necessary to close theaters, schools, churches, and factories, but is the aim of the health department of Buffalo to avoid such drastic measures. The health department is anxious to avoid that which becomes necessary in some of our large cities like Washington, Philadelphia, Boston, and close up everything. These practical preventative measures decided upon by the health department included something we in 2020 are all too familiar with, the concept of social distancing, or as they called it, social quarantining. 
This concept, as they described, meant, quote, the adoption of all sorts of sanitary precautions and the use in advance of ordinary precautionary treatments. They added, daily spraying of the throat with salt and water and antitoxin injections are among the preventative measures recommended. The health department also decided to conduct an educational campaign with information mainly delivered through public schools and theaters. The campaign aimed to educate the public on how to prevent the spread of the virus, numbering the ways as follows. Number one, cover up your coughs and sneezes so as to not spread disease. Avoid the coughing and sneezing of any other person. Number three, prevent catching cold by proper clothing, fresh air, proper food, avoiding drafts, avoiding use of public drinking cups, avoiding promiscuous kissing, and keeping your home at a moderate temperature. Number four, immediately isolate until well any member of your family who has a cold. Such person should wear a mask, which is made of gauze or cheesecloth. Those attending such persons should protect themselves by wearing a similar mask. Number five, sleep separately, or if compelled to sleep more than one in a bed, sleep head to foot. Number six, any person with a cold or any signs of grip, aka influenza, should immediately go to bed and stay there until the termination of the disease. Better still, advise with your family physician at once. Number seven, anyone who coughs and sneezes in any assembly of people should be asked by the officer or usher to leave forthwith. Number eight, all persons coming from mobilization camps or infected districts should isolate themselves for seven days. Number nine, observation of these rules is your patriotic duty. They help to fight the enemy at home. And finally, number 10, read this at every public meeting and in all of the schools. On October 8th, only one day after deciding not to mandate a quarantine throughout the city, Dr. Graham advised Mayor George Buck that the city, in fact, should be shut down. On the previous day, 122 new influenza cases had been reported and many more were surely to be discovered soon. The virus was simply spreading too rapidly to contain. On October 10th, Mayor Buck announced that the quarantine would begin at 5 a.m. the following day. Buck's declaration stated, in order to avoid an alarming spread of the virus throughout the city, all large indoor assemblies be prohibited, including theaters, movie picture shows, churches, Sunday schools, public schools, parochial schools, saloons, and dance halls. He added that railway stations were to be monitored closely by physicians and nurses to ensure that any person arriving in Buffalo was not diseased. Printed in the Buffalo Times just below Buck's declaration was a short article announcing that Police Chief Henry Gervin had instructed all members of his department to enforce an anti-spitting ordinance and to arrest anyone caught in the act. Buffalo's Central High was converted into an emergency hospital to deal with the crisis. Still, medical facilities, funeral parlors, and cemeteries were overrun. If there was one good thing to come from the quarantine, it was that some local draft boards postponed the physicals of young men for army service. 
Little did they know the war would last only another few weeks. Jails posed a significant problem for health officials. The close quarters of a jail made social distancing impossible. At the Erie County Jail, workers developed a strict schedule for cleaning. According to an officer, the facility was to be fumigated four times a day and social measures were taken to ensure a passage of fresh air through the building. As of October 12th, no cases of Spanish flu were reported at the jail. Just as we saw earlier this year in 2020, doctors around the country promoted treatments which they believed may be cures for the flu. One doctor from Pittsburgh recommended a hypodermic injection of iodine, creosote, and guaiacol. Quote, one shot into the vein and the patient will feel no effect, his advertisement claimed. Other products marketed for relief or prevention of the virus included Nostriola, which claimed to cleanse and disinfect your nasal passages, throat, and bronchial tubes. Tonsiline, which was billed as the national sore throat remedy and muster pep for quick relief of the flu. For instant relief of the flu, chest pains, or even back pains, just rub on the greaseless balm each day and night. Also, don't worry, the manufacturer promised it won't stain your clothes or your bedding. The economic shutdown lasted until November 3rd, when the number of influenza cases had dropped significantly. Though the city's influenza advisory panel declared the outbreak had ended, Multiple cases of the virus still spread in smaller numbers throughout the city and county. Between September and the end of the year, the flu infected nearly 30,000 people within the city, killing just over 2,500. We should acknowledge that due to the relaxed recording practices of flu-related cases and deaths after November, these numbers are likely underreported. Though the city had been shut down at the orders of the mayor, Papers reported that the government and businesses were working to take care of people in the city who were in need. The Buffalo Commercial newspaper reported that coal was being delivered to families that were ill or unable to heat their homes. The same paper also reported that the Erie County Food Administrator James Stafford had requested from the federal government that the rations on sugar due to wartime be lifted so that families might be able to make homemade sickness remedies, cough syrups, and additional canned fruits to get them through the winter. Families had been allotted two pounds per month, but had gone beyond that allotment in previous months. Papers also printed want ads noting an urgent need for volunteers. Men and women were needed to help convalescents who were too weak or unable to care for themselves. It begged for volunteers to take the weak and recovering into their homes to do their part to fight the flu. Encouraged by a decreasing number of deaths caused by the virus, the city resumed its normal activities. According to the Buffalo Courier, on November 2nd, quote, the moving picture houses were open in the afternoon and evening. The theaters booked and billed their attractions. The city quickly adjusted itself to ordinary conditions. Public schools also resumed their schedule, welcoming students back Wednesday, November 6th, private schools reopened at their own discretion. Sports, too, attempted to resume a normal schedule, as during the quarantine, games were either canceled or teams were forced to play before empty stadiums. As one headline read, flu will not keep college football teams idle today. 
noting several big matches on the docket for the weekend. Excitement stirred as University of Buffalo football was ready to battle Niagara University at the Buffalo Baseball Park in what was being called their first real game of the season. Just as today, cities wrestled with the logistics and fears of reopening after quarantine. After having been shut down throughout October, the city of Niagara Falls reopened in early November. But within the first week, 259 new cases emerged. 268 new cases followed the next week, leaving local health physician Walter Scott no choice but to declare another shutdown. The notice prohibited any unnecessary social gatherings of any nature and banned any special sales from stores. On November 18, 1918, just days after the armistice effectively ended fighting on the Western Front, the Buffalo Times reported that Buffalo, as compared to large cities across the Northeast, had vied quite well. Through the month of October, the height of the pandemic, Buffalo recorded 23,544 influenza cases, equaling just under 5% of the city's population. It was generally expected that any major city hit hard with the flu would see infection rates of nearly 20%. Buffalo fell far below that number. That month, Buffalo recorded 1,435 influenza-related deaths, a much lower rate per capita than cities like Syracuse, Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C., and Boston. Syracuse, with a death rate of 4.11 per thousand, was the highest in the nation. Comparatively, Buffalo's rate was nearly half that, at 2.28 per thousand. The flu, much like COVID-19, infected and killed a larger-than-normal number of seemingly healthy adults. Again, citing numbers from the virus's peak in October, a disproportionate amount of deaths occurred among adults 20 to 40 years old. Those in that range lost a monthly total of 847 people, a total number 30% higher than all remaining demographics added together. Among the city's losses attributed to the influenza was Alethea Burge Carey, wife of famed architect George Carey and daughter of George Burge of Burge Wallpaper. George Carey had designed a number of buildings throughout Buffalo, including Buffalo General Hospital, the Pan American Exposition's Ethnology Building, the Pierce Arrow Motor Car Company's headquarters on Elmwood Avenue, and somewhere close to my heart, the Buffalo History Museum. Burge's death made front-page news as Buffalo had lost one of its beloved society women. In her obituary, the papers praised Althea's dedication to her family, noting that she contracted the virus while caring for her son, George Jr., who also had been infected. In perusing newspapers printed during the epidemic a century ago, it's difficult not to notice countless similarities to news stories today. Many articles informed the public on local policies regarding the pandemic. Others updated the public on the rising infection rates and death tolls. Some investigated changing business policies in the wake of the illness. And the obituaries, sadly, as you would expect, were more numerous than usual, given first the influenza and also the war. 
World War I resulted in the deaths of approximately 20 million people. Of them, perhaps 20% were taken not by gunfire or artillery barrages, but by the flu. Modern research suggests that the pandemic may have taken the lives of as many as 50 million people. Other people claim the number could be as high as 100 million. Regardless, even as humans had done their very best to kill one another with new tactics and weaponry, Mother Nature proved vastly superior. In the United States, the Great War claimed the lives of 117,000, 968 of whom called Western New York their home. In under a year, the flu had taken as many as 675,000. As we move into the colder weather and the uptick in COVID cases around the nation has already begun to spike, let's all remember to keep each other safe and care for those more vulnerable. The past does not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Let's remember the lessons learned during the fall of 1918 and those learned earlier this year. We've been through this before and we can get through this again. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew M. Cuomo, and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is also provided by M&T Bank and from the generous support of our donors, members, and friends. We thank you all so much for listening and encourage you to help us grow by subscribing, reviewing us, and telling your friends and family. We'll see you all in two weeks with another great story. So until then, take care.